Autoeroticism, a study of the spontaneous manifestations of the sexual impulse. Part 2, Section 1 of Studies in the Psychology of Sex, Volume 1, by Havelock Ellis. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by O123. Autoeroticism, a study of the spontaneous manifestations of the sexual impulse. Part 2. Section 1. The nocturnal hallucinations of hysteria, as all careful students of this condition now seem to agree, are closely allied to the hysterical attack proper. Solier, indeed one of the ablest of the more recent investigators of hysteria, has argued with much force that the subjects of hysteria really live in a state of pathological sleep, of visilambulism. He regards all the various accidents of hysteria as having a common basis in disturbances of sensibility, in the widest sense of the word sensibility, as the very foundation of personality, while anesthesia is the real sensibility hysteria. Whatever the form of hysteria, we are thus only concerned with a more or less profound state of visibility, a state in which the subject seems, often even to himself, to be more or less always asleep, whether the sleep may be regarded as local or general. Solier agrees with Ferry that the disorder of sensibility may be regarded as due to an exertion of the sensory centers of the brain, whether as the result of constitutional cerebral weakness, of the shock of a violent emotion, or of some toxic influence on the cerebral cells. We may therefore fitly turn from the autoerotic phenomena of sleep, which in women generally, and especially in historical women, seem to possess so much importance and significance, to the question which has been so diversely answered at different periods and by different investigators, concerning the causation of hysteria, and especially concerning its alleged connection with conscious or unconscious sexual emotion. It was the belief of the ancient Greeks that hysteria came from the womb, hence its name. We first find that statement in Plato's Timaeus, in man the organ of generation becoming rebellious and masterful, like an animal disobedient to reason, and maddened with the sting of lust, seeks to gain absolute sway, and the same is the case with the so-called womb or uterus of women. The animal within them is desirous of procreating children, and when remaining unfruitful long beyond its proper time, gets discontented and angry, and, wandering in every direction through the body, closes up the passages of the breath and by obstructing respiration, drives them to extremity, causing all varieties of disease. Plato, it is true, cannot be said to reveal anywhere a very scientific attitude toward nature. Yet, he has here probably only given expression to the current medical doctrine of his day. We find precisely the same doctrine attributed to Hippocrates, though without a clear distinction between hysteria and epilepsy. If we turn to the best Roman physicians, we find again that Editus, the squirrel of antiquity, has set forth the same view, adding to his description of the movements of the womb in hysteria. It delights also in fragrant smells and advances toward them, and it has an aversion to feed its smells and flies from them. And on the whole, the womb is like an animal within an animal. Consequently, the treatment was by applying fitted smells to the nose and rubbing fragrant ornaments around the sexual parts. The Arab physicians who carried on the traditions of Greek medicine appeared to have said nothing new about hysteria, and possibly had little knowledge of it. In Christian medieval Europe, also nothing new was added to the theory of hysteria. 
It was indeed less known medically than it had ever been, and in part it may be as a result of this ignorance, in part as a result of general wretchedness. The historical phenomena of witchcraft reaching their height, Mitchell had points out, in the 14th century, which was a period of special misery for the poor, it flourished more vigorously. Not alone have we the records of nervous epidemics, but illuminated manuscripts, ivories, miniatures, bas-reliefs, frescoes, and engravings furnish the most vivid iconographic evidence of the prevalence of hysteria in its most violent forms during the Middle Ages. Much of this evidence is brought to the service of science in the fascinating works of Dr. P. Riker, one of Jargon's pupils. In the 17th century, Ambroy Parry was still talking, like Hippocrates, about suffocation of the womb. Forestus was still, like Aretas, applying friction to the vulva. Farnell was still reproaching Galen, who had denied that the movements of the womb produced hysteria. It was in the 17th century, 1618, that a French physician, Charles Lepoy, Carolus Piso, physician to Henry II, trusting, as he said, to experience and reason, overthrew at one stroke the doctrine of hysteria that had ruled almost unquestioned for two thousand years, and showed that the malady occurred at all ages and in both sexes, that its seat was not in the womb but in the brain, and that it must be considered a nervous disease. So revolutionary a doctrine could not fail to meet with violent opposition, but it was confirmed by Willis, and in 1681 we owe to the genius of Sydenham a picture of history of us for lucidity, precision, and comprehensiveness has only been excelled in our own times. It was not possible any longer to maintain the womb theory of Hippocrates in its crude form, but in modified forms, and especially with the object of preserving the connection which many observers continued to find between hysteria and the sexual emotions. It still found supporters in the 18th and even the 19th centuries. James, in the middle of the 18th century, returned to the classical view, and in his Dictionary of Medicine, maintained that the womb is the seat of hysteria. Lower Villermain, in 1816, asserted that the most frequent causes of hysteria are deprivation of the pleasures of love, griefs connected with dispassion, and disorders of menstruation. Fauville, in 1833, and Landosi, in 1846, advocated somewhat similar views. The acute Laycock, in 1840, quoted as almost a medical proverb, the same, Salacitus Maser, Maser ad Hysterium Proclividus, fully endorsing it. More recently, Steele Thurston has defined hysteria as the loss of the inhibitory influence exercised on the reproductive and sexual instincts of women by the higher mental and moral functions, a position evidently requiring some modification in view of the fact that hysteria is by no means confined to women, while the same authority remarks that more or less constant sexual phenomena are the chief symptoms of hysterical insanity. Two gynecologists of high position in different parts of the world, Hager in Germany and Balls Headley in Australia, attribute hysteria as well as anemia largely to unsatisfied sexual desire including the non-satisfaction of the ideal feelings. Lambroso and Ferrero again, while admitting that the sexual feelings might be either heightened or depressed in hysteria, referring to the frequency of what they termed a paradoxical sexual instinct in the hysterical, by which, for instance, sexual frigidity is combined with intense sexual preoccupations. And they also pointed out the significant fact that the crimes of the hysterical nearly always revolve around the sexual sphere. Thus, even up to the time when the conception of hysteria, which absolutely ignored 
and excluded any sexual relationship whatever had reached its height. Independent views favoring such a relationship still found expression. Of recent years, however, such views usually aroused violent antagonism. The main current of opinion was with Brickett, 1859, who, treating the matter with considerable ability and a wide induction of facts, indignantly repelled the idea that there is any connection between hysteria and the sexual facts of life, physical or psychic. As he himself admitted, Brickett was moved to deny a sexual causation of hysteria by the thought that such an origin would be degrading for women. A it was, however, the genius of Charcot and influence of his able pupils which finally secured the overthrow of the sexual theory of hysteria. Charcot empathetically anathematized the visceral origin of hysteria. He declared that it is a psychic disorder and to leave no loophole of escape for those who maintained a sexual causation. He asserted that there are no varieties of hysteria, that the disease is one and indivisible. Charcot recognized no primordial cause of hysteria beyond heredity which here plays a more important part than in any other neuropathic condition. Such heredity is either direct or more occasionally by transformation, and a deviation of nutrition found in the ancestors, gout, diabetes, arthritis, being a possible cause of hysteria in the descendants. We do not know anything about the nature of hysteria. Charcot wrote in 1892, We must make it objective in order to recognize it. The dominant idea for us in the theology of hysteria is, in the widest sense, its hereditary predisposition. The greater number of those suffering from disaffection are simply born hysterizables, and on them the occasional causes act directly, either through autosuggestion or by causing derangement of general nutrition, and more particularly of the nutrition of the nervous system. These views were ably and decisively stated in Zile de la Torre's Treaty de la Stadia, written under the inspiration of Jacob. While Charcot's doctrine was thus being affirmed and generally accepted, there were at the same time workers in these fields who, though they by no means ignored this doctrine of history or even rejected it, were included to think that it was too absolutely stated. Writing in the Dictionary of Psychological Medicine at the same time as Charcot, Donkin, while deprecating any exclusive emphasis on the sexual causation, pointed out the enormous part played by the emotions in the production of history and the great influence of puberty in women due to the greater extent of the sexual organs, and the consequently large area of central nourishing involved, and thus rendered liable to fall into a state of unstable equilibrium, and forced abstinence from the gratification of any of the inherent and primitive desires, he pointed out, may be an adequate exciting cause. Such a view as this indicated that to set aside the ancient doctrine of a physical sexual cause of hysteria was by no means to exclude a psychic sexual cause. Ten years earlier, Axenfield and Houchard pointed out that the reaction against the sexual origin of hysteria was becoming excessive, and their effort to the evidence brought forward by veterinary surgeons, showing that unsatisfied sexual desire in animals may produce nervous symptoms very similar to hysteria. The present writer when in 1894, briefly discussing hysteria as an element in secondary sexual characterization, ventured to reflect a view, confirmed by his own observation, that there was a tendency to unduly minimize the sexual factor in hysteria, and further pointed out that the old error of a special connection between hysteria and the female sexual organs probably arose from the fact that, in women, the organic sexual sphere is larger than in man. 
when indeed we analyze the foundation of the once predominant opinions of Charcot and his school regarding the sexual relationships of hysteria, it becomes clear that many fallacies and misunderstandings were involved. Bricket, Charcot's chief predecessor, acknowledged that his own view was that a sexual origin of hysteria would be degrading to women. That is to say, he admitted that he was influenced by a foolish and improper prejudice for the belief that the unconscious and involuntary morbid reactions of the nervous system to any disturbance of a great primal instinct can have. Kilko shows that the Cardon is itself an immoral belief. Such disturbance of the nervous system might or might not be caused. But in any case, the alleged degradation could only be the fiction of a distorted imagination. Again, confusion had been caused by the ancient error of making the physical sexual organs responsible for hysteria. First, the womb. More recently, the ovaries. The outcome of disbelief was the extirpation of the sexual organs for the cure of hysteria. Charcot condemned absolutely all such operations as unscientific and dangerous, declaring that there is no such thing as hysteria of menstrual origin. Subsequently, Angelusi and Pierasini carried out an international inquiry into the results of the surgical treatment of hysteria and condemned it in the most unqualified manner. It is clearly demonstrated that the physical sexual organs are not the seat of hysteria. It does not, however, follow that even physical sexual desire, when repressed, is not a cause of hysteria. The opinion that it was so formed an essential part of the early doctrine of hysteria and was embodied in the ancient maxim Nobat Allah at Mahbuz Ifugiyat. The Umb, it seemed to the ancients, was crying out for satisfaction, and when that was received, the disease vanished. But when it became clear that sexual desire, though ultimately founded on the sexual apparatus, is a nervous and psychic fact, to put the sexual organs out of count was not sufficient, for the sexual emotions may exist before puberty, and persist after complete removal of the sexual organs. Thus it has been the object of many writers to repel the idea that unsatisfied sexual desire can be a cause of hysteria. Brickett pointed out that hysteria is rare among nuns and frequent among prostitutes. Craft have been believed that most hysterical women are not anxious for sexual satisfaction and declared that hysteria caused through the non-satisfaction of the coarse sensual sexual impulse I have never seen, while Petrus and others refer to the frequently painful nature of sexual hallucinations in the historical. But it soon becomes obvious that the psychic sexual sphere is not confined to the gratification of conscious physical sexual desire. It was not true that hysteria is rare among nuns. Some of the most tremendous epidemics of hysteria and the most carefully studied having occurred in convents, while the hysterical phenomena sometimes associated with revivals are well known. The supposed prevalence among prostitutes would not be evidence against the sexual relationships of hysteria. It has, however, been denied, even by so great an authority as parent de Tillade, who found it very rare, even in prostitutes in hospitals, when it was often associated with masturbation. In prostitutes, however, who returned to a respectable life, giving up their old habits, he found hysteria common and severe. The frequent absence of physical sexual feeling again may quite reasonably be taken as evidence of a disorder of the sexual emotions. While the undoubted fact that sexual intercourse usually has little beneficial effect on pronounced hysteria, and that sexual excitement during sleep and sexual hallucinations are often painful in the same condition, is far from showing that injury or repression of the sexual emotions had nothing to do with the production of hysteria. It would be as reasonable to argue that the evil effect of a heavy meal on a starving man must be taken as evidence 
that he was not suffering from starvation. The fact, indeed, on which Gilles de la Torre and others have remarked, that the hysterical often desire not so much sexual intercourse as simple affection, would tend to show that there is here a real analogy, and that starvation, or lesion of the sexual emotions, may produce, like bodily starvation, a rejection of those satisfactions which are demanded in health. Thus, even a mainly a prior examination of the matter may lead us to see that many arguments brought forward in favor of Charcot's position on this point fall to the ground when we realize that the sexual emotions may constitute a highly complex fear, often hidden from observation, sometimes not conscious at all, and liable to many lesions besides that due to the non-satisfaction of sexual desire. At the same time, we are not thus enabled to overthrow any of the positive results attained by Charcot and his school. It may, however, be pointed out that Charcot's attitude towards hysteria was the outcome of his own temperament. He was primarily a neurologist. The bent of his genius was toward the investigation of facts that could be objectively demonstrated. His first interest in hysteria, dating from as far back as 1862, was in hysteroepileptic convulsive attacks, and to the last, he remained indifferent to all facts which could not be objectively demonstrated. That was the secret of the advances he was enabled to make in neurology. For purely psychological investigation, he had no liking and probably no aptitude. Anyone who was privileged to observe his methods of work at Serpetrini will easily recall the great master's towering figure. The disdainful expression, sometimes even it seemed a little sour. The lofty bearing, which enthusiastic admirers called Napoleonic. The questions addressed to the patient were cold, distant, sometimes impatient. Charcot clearly had little faith in the value of any results so attained. One may well believe also that a man whose superficial personality was so haughty and awe-inspiring to strangers would in any case have had the greatest difficulty in penetrating the mysteries of a psychic world so obscure and elusive as that presented by the hysterical. The way was thus opened for further investigations on the psychic side. Charcot had affirmed the power, not only of physical traumatism, but even of psychic lesions, of moral shocks, to provoke its manifestations. But his sole contribution to the psychology of this psychic malady, and this was borrowed from the Nancy school, lay in one word, suggestibility. The nature and mechanism of this psychic process he left wholly on his plate. This step has been taken by others, in part by Janet, who from 1889 onward has not only insisted that the emotions stand in the first line among the causes of hysteria, but also pointed out some portion of the mechanism of this process. Thus he saw the significance of the fact, already recognized, that strong emotions tend to produce anesthesia, and to lead to a condition of mental disaggregation, favorable to ebullia or evolution of willpower. It remained to show in detail the mechanism by which the most potent of all the emotions affects its influence. And, by attempting to do this, the Viennese investigators, Brewer and especially Freud, have greatly aided the study of hysteria. They have not, it is important to remark, overturned the positive elements in their great forerunner's work. Freud began as a disciple of Charcot, and he himself remarked that, in his earlier investigations of hysteria, he had no thought of finding any sexual etiology for that malady. He would have regarded any such suggestion as an insult to his patient. The results reached by these workers were the outcome of long and detailed investigation. Freud has investigated many cases of hysteria in minor detail, often devoting to a single case over a hundred hours of work. 
The patients, unlike those on whom the results of the French school had been mainly founded, all belonged to the educated classes. And it was thus possible to carry out an elaborate psychic investigation, which would be impossible among the uneducated. Brewer and Freud insist on the fine qualities of mind and character frequently found among the hysterical. They cannot accept suggestibility as an invariable characteristic of hysteria. Only abnormal excitability. They are far from agreeing with Janet, although on many points at one with him, that psychic weakness marks hysteria. There is merely an appearance of mental weakness, they say, because the mental activity of the hysterical is split up, and only part of it is conscious. The superiority of character of the hysterical is indicated by the fact that the conflict between their ideas of right and the path of their inclinations is often an element in the constitution of the hysterical state. Brewer and Freud are prepared to assert that the hysterical are among the flower of humanity, and they refer to those qualities of combined imaginative genius and practical energy which characterized Saint Teresa, the patron saint of the hysterical. To understand the position of Brewer and Freud, we may start from the phenomena of nervous shock produced by physical traumatism, often of a very slight character. Charcot had shown that such nervous shock with a chain of resulting symptoms is nothing more or less than hysteria. Brewer and Freud may be linked onto Charcot at this point. They begin by regarding the most typical hysteria as really a psychic traumatism. That is to say that it starts in a lesion, or rather in repeated lesions, of emotional organism. It is true that the school of Charcot admitted the influence of moral shock, especially of the emotion of fear, but that merely as an agent provocative, and with a curious perversity, Gilebilatore, certainly reflecting the attitude of Charcot in his elaborate treatise on hysteria, fails to refer to the sphere of the sexual emotions even when enumerating the agents provocatives. The influence of fear is not denied by Brewer and Freud, but they have found that Careful psychic analysis frequently shows that the shock of a commonplace fear is really rooted in a lesion of the sexual emotions. A typical and very simple illustration is furnished in a case recorded by Brewer, in which a young girl of seventeen had her first hysterical attack after a cat sprang on her shoulders as she was going downstairs. Careful investigation showed that this girl had been the object of somewhat aberrant attentions from a young man whose advances she had resisted although her own sexual emotions had been aroused. A few days before, she had been surprised by this young man on these same dark stairs, and had forcibly escaped from his hands. Here was the real psychic traumatism, the operation of which merely became manifest in the cat. But in how many cases, asks Brewer, is a cat does recount as a completely sufficient causa efficience? In every case that they have investigated, Brewer and Freud have found some similar secret lesion of the psychic sexual sphere. In one case, a governess, whose training has been severely upright, is, in spite of herself and without any encouragement, laid to experience for the father of the children under her care and affection, which she refuses to acknowledge even to herself. In another, a young woman finds herself falling in love with her brother-in-law. Again, an innocent girl suddenly discovers her uncle in the act of sexual intercourse with her playmate, and a boy on his way home from school is subjected to the coarse advances of a sexual invert. In nearly every case, as Freud eventually found reason to believe, a primary relation of the sexual emotions dates from the period of puberty and frequently of childhood, and in nearly every case, the intimately private nature of the relation causes it to be carefully hidden from everyone 
and even to be unacknowledged by the subject of it. In the earlier cases, Breuer and Freud found that a slight degree of hypnosis is necessary to bring the relation into consciousness, and the accuracy of the revelations thus obtained has been tested by independent witness. Freud has, however, long abandoned the induction of any degree of hypnosis. He simply tries to arrange that the patient shall feel absolutely free to tell her own story, and so proceeds from the surface downwards, slowly finding and piecing together such essential fragments of the history as may be recovered. In the same way, he remarks, as the archaeologist excavates below the surface and recovers and puts together the fragments of an antique statue. Much of the material found, however, has only a symbolic value requiring interpretation and is sometimes pure fantasy. Freud now attaches great importance to dreams as symbolically representing much in the subject's mental history which is otherwise difficult to reach. The subtle and slender clues which Freud frequently follows in interpreting dreams cannot fail sometimes to arouse doubt in his readers' minds, but he certainly seems to have been often successful in thus reaching latent facts in consciousness. The primary relation may thus act as a foreign body in consciousness. Something is introduced into psychic life which refuses to merge in the general flow of consciousness. It cannot be accepted simply as other facts of life are accepted. It cannot even be talked about and so submitted to the slow user by which our experiences are worn down and gradually transformed. Brewer illustrates what happens by reference to the sneezing reflex. When an irritation to the nasal mucosal membrane for some reason fails to liberate this reflex, a feeling of excitement and tension arises. This excitement, being unable to stream out along motor channels, now spreads itself over the brain, inhibiting other activities. In the highest spheres of human activity, we may watch the same process. It is a result of this process that Brewer and Freud found the mere act of confession may greatly relieve the hysterical symptoms produced by this psychic mechanism, and in some cases may wholly and permanently remove them. It is on this fact that they founded their method of treatment, devised by Brewer and by him termed the cathartic method, though Freud prefers to call it the analytic method. It is, as Freud points out, the reverse of the hypnotic method of suggestive treatment. There is the same difference, Freud remarks, between the two methods as Leonardo da Vinci found for the two technical methods of art, par via de poi and par via de levi. The hypnotic method, like painting, works by putting in the cathartic or analytic method, like sculpture, works by taking out. It is part of the mechanism of this process, as understood by these authors, that the physical symptoms of hysteria are constituted by a process of conversion out of injured symptoms which then sink into the background or altogether out of consciousness. Thus they found the prolonged tension of nursing a near and dear relative to be a very frequent factor in the production of hysteria. For instance, an originally rheumatic pain experienced by a daughter when nursing her father becomes the symbol in memory of her painful psychic excitement, and this perhaps for several reasons, but chiefly because its presence in consciousness almost exactly coincided with that excitement. In another way, again nausea and vomiting may become a symbol through the profound sense of disgust with which some emotional shock was associated. Then the symbol begins to have a life of its own and draws hidden strength from the emotion with which it is correlated. Brewer and Freud have found by careful investigation that the pains and physical troubles of hysteria are far from being capricious. 
but may be traced in a various manner to an origin in some incident, some pain, some action, which is associated with a moment of acute psychic agony. The process of conversion was an involuntary escape from an intolerable emotion, comparable to the physical pain sometimes sought in intense mental grief, and the patient wins some relief from the tortured emotions, though at the cost of psychic abnormality, of a more or less divided state of consciousness and of physical pain, or else anesthesia. In Charcot's third stage of the hysterical conversion, that of attitude specialis, Brewer and Freud see the hallucinatory reproduction of the recollection, which is full of significance for the origin of historical manifestations. The final result reached by these workers is clearly stated by each writer. The main observation of our predecessors, stated Brewer, still preserved in the word hysteria is nearer to the truth than the more recent view which puts sexuality almost in the last line, with the object of protecting the patient from moral reproaches. Certainly, the sexual needs of the hysterical are just as individual and as various in force as those of the healthy, but they suffer from them, and in large measure, indeed they suffer precisely through the struggle with them, through the effort to thrust sexuality aside. The weightiest fact, concludes Freud, on which we strike in a thorough pursuit of the analysis is this, from whatever side and from whatever symptoms we start, we always unfailingly reach the reason of the sexual life. Here, first of all, an etiological condition of hysterical states is revealed. At the bottom of every case of hysteria, and reproducible by an analytical effort, after even an interval of long years may be found one or more facts of precocious sexual experience belonging to earliest youth. I regard this as an important result, as the discovery of a caput nilai of neuropathology. Ten years later, enlarging rather than restricting his conception, Freud remarks, Sexuality is not a mere dual ex machina, which intervenes but once in the hysterical process. It is the motive force of every separate symptom and every expression of a symptom. The morbid phenomena constitute, to speak plainly, the patient's sexual activity. The actual historical feat, Freud now states, may be regarded as the substitute for a once practiced and then abundant autoerotic satisfaction, and similarly, it may be regarded as an equivalent of coitus. And of Autoeroticism, Part 2, Section 1.